2: Good evening, and welcome to the HRN Happy Hour. I'm your host, HRN Executive Director Katie Mosman-Wadler. My co-host is here, Kat Johnson. Hi, Kat. Hello. We have, yay, (laughs) we have a big round of applause. We have some really special guests on the lineup for tonight. Um, Before we get to them, we're going to go through just a quick overview of what's been happening in the studio and beyond at HRN this week.
3: Yeah, so... Couple quick things that shows that have happened this week um, on speaking broadly. Dana Cowan welcomed Kat Kinsman, the senior food and drink editor at Extra Crispy. Um, on the line, Eli Sussman welcomed Jake Dell, the owner and vice president of Katz's Delicatessen. And on cooking issues, Dave and Anastasia answered questions about homemade ramen noodles, pre-searing meat, fish sauce, slushy machines, immersion circulators, pizza ovens, and more. So. All kinds of crazy stuff. (laughs) On the speakeasy, Damon and Souther were joined by bartenders Garrett Richard, Jim Kearns, and Ray Sackover to talk about Tiki Classics, Spicy Cocktails, and Slowly Shirley's Exotica Nights, which will happen every second Tuesday of the month starting March 14th. So you can listen to all of these shows on heritageradionetwork.org. And the last one I wanted to mention um, was on What Doesn't Kill You?, Tom Tom Pilfot, sorry Tom Billpot <laughs> joined um, Katie to talk about the new regime for our agricultural sector. No more earthy crunchy stuff like supporting know your farmer, know your food. Um, they talked about Sunny Purdue and what you can expect from the ag sector and the new and the food movement.
2: And uh, we'll get back to some of those themes with a few of our guests a little bit later on in the show. We're going to be talking to a uh, very special urban farmer who will be calling in in a few minutes and will also be later in the show getting to a panel with some charcuterie masters that we're really excited to talk to about um, kind of the biopolitics of charcuterie and uh, the, the meaning of regulation and food safety in the charcuterie space. Um, but first, I would love to introduce our first guest, Uh, In studio with us, we have an old friend of the HRN On Tour show that we did in Nashville, Edgar Penley from Urban Grub in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Edgar. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, So we actually all just got back from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Edgar, you were there. We were there broadcasting live, and um, it was an amazing couple of days. I I know that we had around 60 guests come in Um, we produce 20 episodes of coverage from our tp at the festival itself edgar what was your schedule like and maybe could you give us a few of your top highlights from charleston
4: oh um well we've been pretty busy in nashville so uh we literally flew in on friday uh, helped bail out a fellow chef from nashville kind of pounded her meat for a little while and uh, then hop straight into a dinner uh, out on a plantation uh, in Runnymede, and then uh, and partied a little bit. You know, but it was it was a good event. It always is, mm-hmm. and uh, we get to see people that we don't normally see uh, throughout the year. So, all good things. Mm-hmm. All good things.
2: Are you feeling spry and fresh? Uh, no, today not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have about twenty four hours, I guess, to get there, um, you have something big happening tomorrow night. What's on your schedule? Uh,
4: we are doing a, a dinner at the James Beard House tomorrow night. So that'll be my first. Uh, it will be my sous chef's fourth. Wow. And I'm, I brought quite a bit of my staff up here as well. So we're, we're very honored to be included uh, in in this. So
2: Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we will get to talking a little bit about your menu and uh, some of the themes of the dinner a little bit later in the show. Also really excited to have you on to talk charcuterie with some of our guests because we know that you are really into that at Urban Grub, that you have a curing room. So we'll get to that a little bit later as well. You also played a big role in um, bringing... You you set up a farmer's market in front of Urban Grub. Um, You are putting a lot of care and attention into sourcing local ingredients for your restaurant. Um, I want to take a quick diversion and talk to somebody who's working in the urban food space, and talk a little bit about some land use issues and politics about growing food in an urban community. Um, So our next guest that I'm so excited to bring on tonight is Ron Finley. Ron, are you on the line?
5: Yes,
6: I am. How are you? Ron, the man, Good Food Awards, best event of the year.
2: Surprise guest Patrick Martins. Ron, thank you.
6: I had to speak up for Ron. I mean, totally. he deserves maximum respect. That event was so magical when he showed up at the end.
2: Yeah, and you can catch the recording of Ron's remarks with Alice Waters on stage at the Good Food Awards at <laughs> heritageradionetwork.org. Ron, thank you so much for calling in today. For, oh,
5: no. Thank you guys for giving me the time.
2: We're so glad to have you here. Um, so you're known as the Gangsta Gardener from L.A. What's yep. the story with the Gangsta Garden? And then we'll get to what's happening right now with the garden. But but why did they call you the Gangsta Gardener?
5: Well, because I feel, you know, gardening is gangster. You know, what I was trying to, what I'm doing with that is turning around what a true gangster is. A grand, gangster doesn't rob, steal, sell drugs and you know all that kind of mess. A real gangster, they provide. You know, they're self-sustaining. gangs to be gangster to be educated. That's what I'm trying to turn it around. To to be gangster is to provide for your your family, your neighborhood.
7: Mm-hmm. You
5: know, that's 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 what I'm trying to turn it. There's nothing more gangster than Mother Nature to me. You know, so that I want I want that to just shift that um, to what a gangster really is Mm -hmm. you know so these kids can look up to like I'm a gangster I grow food
2: (laughs) Uh, so at the good food awards you told everybody in the audience that we all need to get out there and grow some shit how did you get started growing shit in your neighborhood and what does that mean for us all to get out there and plant something to eat
5: well it, it means a lot you know I also tell people you don't need meds you need a garden you know, I mean, all your medication is in that garden. If you use it the proper, proper way, uh, it means a lot. It means a lot to my community. What to me, a lot of this is by design. No, all of it's by design. All of it. These these neighborhoods that are, are not provide you uh, People in the neighborhoods. There's no healthy food anywhere around. That's by design. Why all of a sudden, when the complexion of these neighborhoods change, there's all. There's healthy food, and there's cafes, and there's jogging tracks, you know, and there's shady trees. Why is that? It's the same neighborhood. The mm-hmm. only thing that changes is the complexion. So what I'm trying to do is have people to get up off their ass and realize this is your community. You can fix it. The guy, you are the guy on the white horse because they're not coming. You, you've already, a, they've already proven. That they could not come to fix your neighborhood mm-hmm. until it's gentrified. You <laughs> know, and I'm trying to change it. You know, uh, well, I am changing, and I mean, I, I've had successes around the planet. Actually be in my space and see my work. I get to see it in real time. I don't have to wait. You know, the fact that you know inspiring people to change their lives and to design. The life that they want to live Rather than the life that's been Designed for you By a bunch of suits In some offices somewhere mm-hmm. You know And that, that's what this is about it's, it's not even about food with me It's about people You know I tell people I don't grow I don't grow food I grow people Maybe they grow some food But first mm-hmm. and foremost It's about caring about Oneself And then caring about The people around you And that's what I'm just trying to. You know, I'm just trying to get back Touch the soil Put some shit in it And mm-hmm. grow it mm-hmm. You know
2: And you got your start. um, You you planted some food in the strip in front of your house. You took a strip of city-owned land, and you turned it into a food oasis, and you ran into some trouble for trying to grow your own food on public space, but you've been undeterred, and now you have a beautiful garden. Um, What's happening, though, with your space right now, and what's the project um, with the GoFundMe all about?
5: Well, right now, our, our place has been sold from under us in a you know, bankruptcy that wasn't supposed to happen, and this, this is, I mean, guess, in another light of activism, just dealing with the whole um, foreclosed property thing. But it's uh, our property, where the garden is, which is the epicenter where people visit around the world, is now um, you know, sold from under us, and they're trying to get us out of the house in the garden and they want to they're trying to sell us they want to sell us the property um at a at a very large profit to them and um that's where we are not right now so we have a gofundme um w gofundme slash save the gangster garden and we're asking people to um help us um Continue to work with them by staying in this property. You know, a lot of people see this this place as an oasis to a pl- uh, place where there's nothing like this around. it. You know, it's, it's beautiful. You know, one morning and um, to see you know little girls playing in your garden. You know, under one of the structures that you have, you know, you have woven out of branches. I mean, it's just yeah. you know, there's nothing like this around. It. It's I mean, this is what we need to get back to.
2: That's something that we want to work hard
5: it's not even about my property per se mm-hmm. it's about the whole fact that this is happening all over the united states people are, are losing their properties but also people are getting kicked off of um of the the places that they're gardening in.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, access to land, especially in an urban space, has been a, a continuing thing that we've been seeing um, with people trying to start small farms and urban farms. Um, but we really want to help you spread the word about your garden in particular. We think it's something really special. We know that you have a lot of celebrity support on this cause. Uh, we see you've had support from Russell Brand, Alice Waters, Carson Daly, Rain Wilson and um, Nell Newman are all pitching in to help spread the word about the GoFundMe. I just want to put in a great word for Ron Finley and really encourage people to check out that GoFundMe and uh, also look at hashtag Save the Garden. We think it's something so important. And, Ron, we're really grateful to you for coming on the show today. Thanks again. No,
5: I appreciate you guys for having me here. Thank you for putting the word out. And if I could add, need to get out and plant some shit. Mm -hmm. If I could
6: add, keep following Heritage Radio Network to follow what Ron's going to be doing. And also shout out to Ben Flanner who started the uh, uh, Brooklyn Grange Mm -hmm. on the roof of this very radio station above our
2: very heads.
6: That was the first uh, Brooklyn Grange, and it led to two of the largest rooftop gardens in the world. So it's East Coast, West Coast. Yeah, Yeah. sure.
2: Yeah. Ron, thanks again for being on today. We'll have you back very soon for an update. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Wow. Um, So, yeah, please, everybody, just take a look at that GoFundMe. And if you can, donate. If you can't, share it on Facebook, share it on social media. What Ron's doing is really beautiful. Um, And it's not just his garden. I mean, he's traveling all around the world to spread this word. And uh, it's just really something impressive. Um, So, with that, we're going to take a quick break and have a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, we will um, join some charcuterie masters here in the studio, talk a little bit about the politics of charcuterie. We'll be right back.
8: is proud to announce that we have just sold our millionth pound of pork to the meatball shop this has got to be some kind of meatball miracle a double meatball mitzvah here at Heritage we always say that meatballs will save the world the true key to sustainable farming is using every part of the animal and meatballs are the perfect model for just that Heritage Foods USA is a network that includes about 25 family farms operating largely out of Kansas and Missouri. And the Meatball Shop moves more heritage breed pork than almost anyone on Earth. And every ounce is sourced from the best pigs, rare and heritage breeds including Gloucestershire Old Spot, Red Wattle, Tamworth, and Berkshire. The meatball shop, in many ways, is the solution to the dilemma posed by Michael Pollan. Can we eat meat sustainably, and can it be accessible for everyone? Well, friends, the answer is yes. (laughs) Making meatballs creates jobs. Meatballs protect the environment. The meatball is such a populist food. It is inexpensive and delicious. Dinner at the meatball shop costs around 10 bucks. It's the very definition of sustainability. The meatball is the food of the people. Truly, from every angle, meatballs will save the world. The Meatball Shop's new location at 53rd and 9th Avenue in Manhattan will open this fall, and they'll be celebrating the anniversary of their first Lower East Side location this February. Please visit them and make sure to check out heritagefoodsusa.com where you can find the very same heritage pork and a whole lot more. Heritage Foods USA is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.
2: And welcome back to the HRN Happy Hour. Thanks again to Ron Finley for calling in from California to talk about hashtag Save the Gangsta Garden. And we're going to change gears now. We're going to talk about charcuterie. Kat Johnson is here to introduce our next guest.
3: Yes, I'm really excited. Our next guest is Francois Vecchio, and he has over 60 years of experience in the meat industry from farm to plate. He specializes in Italian, Spanish, French, and German traditional meat craftsmanship. And I mean, he's been working with charcuterie for, for decades, really. And Francois, welcome to HR and Happy Hour. Francois, are you there? Welcome. Hi. Hi. So Francois, we talked a little bit earlier today and and you know there are a lot of kind of scary things happening with our meat industry right now, but one thing that you said that stuck out was that a lot of people are rediscovering charcuterie and are making it themselves. And can you explain a little bit why that's why that's happening? Well, on one hand, the-
9: The meat business has been completely transformed by industrialization, by distribution of food, by the big box. And consumers get more and more distant from the source of their food. And I guess get the feeling that what they find in supermarkets is not the best. Uh, then some travel or experience and discover that chocolate tree can be delicious. Uh, they have access to the farm in some cases and can find the animal raised properly from the proper breed. And they start making their own chocolate tree in their kitchen, in their basement, in their attic. Uh, The movement was, I think, led mostly by chefs, because chefs, by destination, are focused on their taste buds and want to find the real stuff. Mm -hmm. They travel a lot, so they discovered in Europe another level of uh, product and uh, discovered that you can achieve that level in America if you have the the right meat and if you follow the recipe and the technique
2: of the tradition. So we are lucky to have with us a a chef, um, Chef Edgar Penley from Urban Grub in Nashville. And Chef Edgar, you have been um, curing some of your own meat. Does that commentary about um, seeing the level of consolidation in the meat industry and kind of the generic meats um, apply to the inspiration that made you begin curing your own meat? And did that occur to you through travel or um, through another source of inspiration?
4: We really, we were looking for a lot of new flavor profiles. Um, And, and all we got was this again, like a big box uh, salami that's, they all taste the same. It tastes like, you know, uh, Hillshire farms or whatever, whatever local thing that you've got, Um, And it's, you know, there's no telling how long it was, how long it was made. And so we wanted to do, we wanted to start, we started with fresh sausages uh, because we couldn't find anything that we liked. And then we started in with the the country hams. And then after that, we started into the salamis and things like that. And it really, it was, it was because everything is just so generic. You cannot tell um, one product from another. Mm -hmm. They're almost indiscernible.
6: I mean, can I do my usual Patrick interruption? Mr. Vecchio, uh, you as well. It's an honor to even be talking on the same show with you guys. One thing I've noticed is that uh, charcuterie and salami and all that is going through the exact same thing today. It's very exciting that beer, uh, cheese, and bread have gone through. Uh, a, a couple decades ago, it used to be that the imported version got the premium. And that if it said, you know, Heineken, you would charge $2 more. But two things happened. The talent pool got better in America, and the ingredients got better, the access to quality ingredients. So what's happening now with charcuterie is that it is indeed the domestic version that's becoming more sought after and will soon be the more expensive one. And the thought of importing a prosciutto from Parma will seem absurd. It'll be antiquated. We'll do it just for change. But that the American ones will actually be the breed-specific, handmade, higher-quality one. And also the terroirs and the tetoirs of the people, the hands, will not be overtaxed. There are going to be many of them, whereas Parma and Daniele, we're asking too much of those regions to produce charcuterie for the world. So it's a very exciting time for charcuterie, especially in America. Uh, that very transformation that we saw in beer is actually happening now, where mm-hmm. we're going to be the respected stuff.
2: Uh, Francois, can you tell us about your background in charcuterie making and what you're currently working on? And maybe give us a teaser about your book that's coming out.
9: Well, it started a long time ago because I got my first knife uh, from my <laughs> grandma as well as an apron myself to work in a butcher shop when I was 12, and that was uh, in 1949. Wow. So I made an, uh, an apprenticeship in Geneva, Switzerland, Then I traveled into Switzerland, you know, the German part, the, italian part i traveled to italy to france Dutch. perfected my skill and i worked in the business in the industry in europe until 80 since 1980 i've been in california i launched there a company which today is known by the name of bussetto food I helped another company in uh, in San Francisco, which is quite famous, called Columbus Salami, turn <laughs> it into a traditional San Franciscan Italian dry salami. That was basically just good for salami, you know, for, for sandwich with salami even in between provolone and uh, and uh, mustard. And uh, I retired about uh, 15 years ago, moved to Alaska because I was tired of too much traffic in the Central Francisco Korea. There I had an opportunity to teach a local teacher to make salami and had the access to his shop to organize seminars. So I have taught... Probably by now 40 or 50 young chefs, private, all, uh, all geographical area, and uh, help some of them, even establish business. The latest is uh, Mike Phillips in, in Minneapolis, who opened the uh, Red Table League, uh, and I helped restaurants learn the craft to add the tree to their menu. I've been even called overseas to, to consult with companies on Delhi project and the sausage project. And uh, I've written the first book to help people connect with the tradition. Wow. Uh, to anchor their their skill into the love of what they do, in the care for the consumer, care for the animal, as opposed to uh, the drive to improve the bottom line, which is the, 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 the rule that, uh, that drives the industry. You cannot achieve quality if you do not put care into what you do. It starts at the farm. It includes respect for the birds, for the land, for nature. You bring a healthy animal. You need to achieve the same level at the local house, in the shopping shop, everywhere, and at retail. And in the, the structure of America, where everything is so big, so distant, I've worked in the meat industry, so I know the factors factor that ruin the quality of the meat in the current system. I'm preaching today for a uh, for meat business that would be local, that would uh, enhance and illustrate the terroir because every region has because of nature, geology, climate, whatever, a destiny, an affinity for a certain type of product and a certain level of quality. Mm-hmm. This was done over a century in Europe. That's why you have a palm shooter, you have a jambon paris, where you have a bayonne. We can do the same in America. We need to stay local because also... Uh, Freshness, which is a characteristic of uh, which is required by short distance, is a must to achieve the highest quality.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Francois, we couldn't ask for a a uh, better expert about the um, the field of charcuterie in the in the United States and the um, opportunities that are facing new chefs and um, entrepreneurs to create. Kind of new markets for local types of charcuterie. I'd like to ask all three of our charcuterie guests: Patrick, Edgar, and Francois. I've only what do you ever think is eaten
6: charcuterie?
2: Well, but you <laughs> talk to you a lot expert. of people who make it. I sell um, to charcutiers. What do you think is the single biggest challenge to face um, somebody who's starting a charcuterie program today, right now in the U.S.?
6: Health codes. Mm. Um. I would say, okay, I'll just... And then then he'll go and answer. My answer would be <laughs> that most charcuterie in this country sucks. And I don't mean that in a negative way. <laughs> I mean it that when you're surrounded by the greats, you're... And when people are not afraid to bullshit, your stuff gets better. And many charcuteries are great, and I just mean that, that there are many great charcuteries here, but for how many there are... Uh, it's important that they compare themselves to the best and that they have the best experts in the field helping them and saying this is very well intentioned, but it's just not that good.
3: Why do you think they're not good? Because is it, is it something that was like a practice that was Why well, don't
4: do you disagree? Uh, no, no, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. So w- when you make something like that, it's it's a, like a fucking jewel mm-hmm. to you. Okay, you care and, so much. And you don't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. But if it's shit... You don't want to, like, admit Mm -hmm. that it's garbage.
3: Because you put a lot of time into it. You put a lot
4: of time into it, and it's effort, and then you have to wait. You know, it's like, okay, I got 1,100 hams hanging right now. I'm constantly nervous about those just being garbage. Are you going to know? Nope. Not until you cut that bitch open. I mean, there's (laughs) no way. There's no way to see what's going to happen down the road with with anything until, you know, until you try it. And and
6: then if it's bad, it really just needs to go in the garbage. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, it's just to say, when someone starts charcuterie, they're like, hey, I just made, I'm I'm young, (laughs) I've been in the business for five years, I make 40 different kinds of charcuterie. You're like, 40?!
7: (laughs) <laughs> really? 40?
6: that's impressive, are they all world class? and they themselves should say no, two of them are world class the other 38 are works in progress and that's great and the works in progress should be creative but they are not done deals and it's not like oh I'm never going to change it anyway I just think, like I talked to my great charcuterie friends of which Mr. Vecchio is a master of the masters, they're like oh we tasted 300 at this tasting I'm like how many were great? they're like great?
1: 3 wow. 4 4,
6: Four. <laughs> but it's not bad that's not bad it's a, it's a work in progress we're a very young country these people are very young it takes perfection it takes repetition you know which is not the um, Top skill set of this youngest generation. Repetition, years and years and years and years and years doing the same thing. So anyway, I think it's fantastic. But you know, I often give these people good advice. I mean, my wife Anne is in cheese. She tastes the cheese. Her duty is to help the producer to be world class, mm-hmm. not to tell them to settle to be a fifth rate cheese. It's uncomfortable. The queen of that is Alice Waters. <laughs> Hug and release. She hugs you, but then she'll also say you still need to work because her goal would never be to talk down to anyone. Mm
7: -hmm.
6: But then you kind of get back to the health code thing. It's like
4: it's okay. In Tennessee, we have cured hams. Tennessee and Kentucky has cured hams for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. A health inspector walks in and sees a piece of meat hanging, and they go, "What are you going to do with that?" <laughs> Are you go serve that, okay? But they're out of the grocery store, which is not inspected by the health department. Mm-hmm. So we, where I'm at right now, um, we're we've been in in planning for a butcher shop for two years now. Uh, that is a USDA facility, and we sell retail out front. That is completely out of the realm in Tennessee. So we will be inspected in the front by one agency and in the back by the other agency. And for the past nine months, they've been fighting over water, where the water is going to go. Gray water, black water, you know, you send send an RFI out, it goes to 10 different people, and then those 10 people send it off to 10 other people, and then we really just don't get anywhere. So we get locked into this bureaucracy of, like, it's just water, Mm. you know didn 't have sewage in it it's just maybe maybe a little bit of blood but and then and then there's the microbial side of it that's just you know that's another major explosion and they they just don't really grasp most of it um, The health department actually called us to ask us what to do with and, and how to write their program because there's so many other people doing it.
9: If I can add a consideration when we speak of the Shakti, I think it's very important when we look at it from our position in America. The the context is very difficult. On one hand, uh, the finance, the rules, the regulation, the the whole economical system is geared to support and maintain the industrialization. It's going to stay. At the level of the safety wants to recreate the, the craft, there is no help, very little assistance, and we have the burden of uh, to, to get up to the requirement of GSGA, which I meant for a world which is not the world of the craft and Consider that when you make wine you use grapes and you make wine. When you make bread, you have flour like bread. When you make shaky you need to kill a pig and to use all the pig, you need to make thirty five or forty items unless you decide to throw away part of it, which industry does. Mm-hmm. They feed the, the pet industry. So, chakitri in the food realm is the more complex. And then the techniques you apply is not just fermenting or cooking or baking. You have three or four or five very complex, very different technology that you have to take place. The most difficult is to ferment aged and salami, where you have to play with salt, with pure, with ferment, with mold, with the bacteriological load of the meat. You have to work with controlling the climate. And it's not done overnight, like when you cook a sausage or smoke a sausage or smoke a slab of bacon. It's done overnight three, four, five, six weeks even if you may be several months.
6: And sometimes so I, e- I will
9: say... Uh, it's extreme difficulty <laughs> in the realm of food, but it's also potentially the most satisfying food and I was pointing to it before in our conversation. Salami consumed young is the only food which could be a perfect probiotic.
6: It could be a perfect bionic.
9: The need to have a strong uh, immune system. We don't in America because we don't eat fresh food and living food. It's all dead. It's also one of the cheapest foods. I'm sorry to interrupt. It's also good to derive from it, but it's a very difficult
6: task. Yes. I will say it's also one of the cheapest foods, you know, when you Mm -hmm. actually consider how little you have to eat to fill you up. But we also, speaking of long times, we have a great guest. I want to say
2: a a big, big thank you to Francois Vecchio Uh, for joining us today. Um, a charcuterie master, and we're so honored to have had you with us today. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And really, it's amazing to hear from you about where charcuterie can be going in the United States. And also, um, really appreciate the insights about using the entire animal and about uh, the probiotic benefits of charcuterie. Thank you so much, Thanks Mr. Vecchio. And
4: Sorry. if you ever get into Nashville, Francois, come see me at Urban Grub. <laughs> <laughs> for sure.
2: And, uh, well, thank you for your- <laughs> Thanks for being on. We have another guest on the line. Patrick, who is joining us now?
6: Someone who has a slaughterhouse number. You will appreciate this. Under 1,000, meaning one of the first 1,000 slaughterhouses in the United States. Talking about a long time, I believe they have been curing hams since 1906. We have uh, uh, a, a real American institution here, uh, uh, Lorenza Volpe. And thank you so much for being on, Lorenza.
7: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be the first
6: uh, first of many times that you're on, but we were not going to do the first charcuterie segment on the HRN Happy Hour without having you on also to talk about your new historic expansion for for a a business that's been around for 118 years practically. So can you tell us about it? Oh, sorry, Katie. Just not um, to
2: mention that it's the week of International Women's Day, and I'm so happy to see a woman yeah. prosciutto maker representing on the show. Thank you, Lorenzo. Oh, well, thank
7: you. Yeah, there's not very many of us, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so we started this project uh, a few years ago. Um, we you know, we have another establishment that makes um, prosciutto now and has been making it for decades but uh, we've outgrown that, so we we started this project two years ago, and it's going to be complete at the end of this month. So we're real excited about it.
6: So, how big is an expansion? Do you uh, does this signify for you? And and, and oh. tell us a little bit about the history since 1906, uh, uh, or how did it happen? The first building, second building, how many buildings do you have now?
7: Well, uh, the company was started by my great uncle who came over from Milan. And he had, um, he had been trained as a saloniere, and when he came over, like so many other Italian immigrants, he started making what he knew in his homeland. Uh, he started making salsiccia and that led to salame, and then the salame led to copa and pancetta and prosciutto. So we continue the tradition by, by making all of those products ourselves, uh, here in the Midwest, where there's uh, plenty of raw material, so wow,
2: it's,
7: um, it's really nice. Well, congratulations on
2: your expansion. I- I'd love to know a little more about the scale of the expansion that you're growing into.
7: Okay, um, well, we 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 still operate out of three facilities uh, currently. We have a retail store, and uh, we lovingly refer to that building as Uno. And then uh, due is where we do our prosciutto, and tre, we do salami. So this one will be cuatro, (laughs) keeping (laughs) keeping with the theme. Uh, It's about 125,000 square feet. Wow. And uh, we're going to be starting with 5,000 prosciutto a week and hope to, you know, grow from there.
6: And some of those are now heritage breed, rare breeds, the kind that we have to eat in order to save. So it's a nice uh, steering of the wheel towards that. And um, anyway, we couldn't be bigger fans. Uh, When is the opening date? Is there a ceremony uh, that HRN needs to cover? Uh, How can the listeners follow you on social media and uh, order one of the famous Volpe hams?
7: Well, now keep in mind that it's going to take a year (laughs) before these are done. (laughs) Or any of your
6: hams. I mean, all of your hams.
7: Right. um, So uh, we have my father who's going to do the first salting. You know, of course, we have the obligatory blessing of the building. (laughs) (laughs) Very (laughs) Italian. uh, And then he'll be doing the first hundred hams. So Mm. I'm sure that will be, that'll be on social media and people can check it out there.
2: What are your handles?
7: Um, You know, I don't know.
2: You're asking
6: in Italian.
2: (laughs) She's like, my handle is... My daughter actually takes care of that, and she's going to kill me for not knowing. We'll say look for Volpi Foods. That's V-O-L-P-I.
6: P-I-F-O-O-D-S. And how many employees do you have, if I can ask? Not to be vulgar, but just to show the power of prosciutto in America. I mean, you have hundreds and hundreds of employees, if I remember.
7: Yeah, we have 220 wow. employees.
6: A mazel and, um, tov, as my people say. That is very, very <laughs> impressive. And what is your actual slaughterhouse number, just for our tag cloud? Uh, it's such an amazing number for those in the industry.
7: Um, I'm sorry. I didn't hear. I didn't hear the mm-hmm. question. What
6: is your processor's number by the USDA? Your USDA oh. number. Uh, 978. Wow, first wow. thousand in the history of America. Wow. That Congratulations.
2: Is Lorenzo, we're so excited about your expansion and uh, really encourage our listeners to check out VolpeFoods.com. Thanks again for being on the show today, Lorenzo.
6: Oh, thank you. Thank we'll you talk you so much. again soon.
2: Okay, <laughs> until soon. Okay. Lorenzo Passetti, thank you. Um, All right. I'd like to change gears one more time and bring it back to our in-studio guest, Edgar Penley from Urban Grub in Nashville. You have a James Beard Foundation dinner tomorrow night, James Beard House, and I want to know about your menu, and I want to know about the theme for the dinner. Does it have a title?
4: Did the title change? Uh, it, we did have a title, but uh, I believe it's actually changed. Um, So, uh, a lot of this stuff is uh, reminiscent of childhood. Um, It's a little bit of, because we're slightly out, we haven't entered into our big time produce season yet. Those things aren't um, available to me. What we do have is the raw ingredients from last year, in uh, canned, fermented, pickled, mm-hmm. dried. You know, we got we've got all this. So so that's kind of what we stuck to, and then um, I just kind of played some little jokes. Uh, the tamales are actually. Um, have you ever had a Hormel tamale?
3: No, Hormel like Hormel Foods.
4: Yeah. They're in a can. Is that
3: like it's like what you made make rotel dip with, right? No. Oh no,
4: no. Uh-uh. No, it's it's in a can and they're stuck straight up and they're wrapped in this wax paper and you open them and there's this strange like red fat that floats on top of them and you dump them out and you have to take the paper off of them and they're disgusting. But I grew up eating them. Um <laughs> And so uh, we took, uh, we took our, our corn, obviously, that we grew, and then we grind uh, to make the masa, and then I made the chili con carne to go inside of it. And the mole has been cooking for a month. It is a mole madre. Um, so every single day we, we you know stir it and we add additional things to it. Wow. Um, it's literally
2: been on the stove, for a month. bubbling. It's has been. It's, it's
4: been in my office. I'm so over smelling mole. It's just not even funny.
2: <laughs> is that the fire hazard you were talking about? Yeah,
4: there's plenty more fire hazards. <laughs> Holy mole! Holy mole! Um, and there are. I believe there is two pounds of truffles in there as well. Two pounds of Spanish black truffles in there.
6: Oh, okay. Um,
4: <laughs> Uh, it's called Southern Hangout. That's right. Okay. Yeah, well, so that's the title I mean. for the yeah. dinner. That is the title for the dinner. Um, the uh, I was supposed to have been able to hunt enough to bring enough venison for the dinner. Uh, however, the end of the year just kind of turned into shit for me at work. And <laughs> guess who didn't get to hunt? I've got a really great uh, lammer in in uh, in, in Nashville, kind of right outside the city. So he was uh, gracious enough to. Uh, give us his lamb to bring up with us as well. Um, and that was kind of a, a, like a play on a potted meat deal that my grandmother used to do. It was like cabbage with this potted meat in there, and you never really knew what it was. <laughs> it could have just been whatever we had. Uh-huh. Um, so, And then the, uh, like the, the sorghum, Mark Gunter at Muddy Pond Sorghum is like one of my heroes, We use uh, about a thousand gallons of his sorghum a year, and uh, these guys—they're—they're like—they're new school Mennonites, so they're like—they've got the beard, they've got the hat and the clothes, but they all drive really nice trucks and they all have like cell phones. It's (laughs) very strange, Um, but they—they've taken a a locomotive uh, that broke down in this town. They built a building around it. Um, they use this locomotive steam boiler to drive the steam in this giant stainless pan uh, where the sorghum, you know, cooks. And then there's that he, he's got it all on hydraulics and it raises and lowers. And that's how they adjust the cook speed. So Mark Gunter is, is one of my like heroes. I mean, we're just kind of he comes in and nerds out on hams and I go up there and nerd out on on. You know, big weeds that he grinds up mm. and presses the juice out of. Do
3: you know what kind of cane they're using to make that?
4: It's sorghum. It's sorghum oh, cane. Okay. Sorghum cane, and he actually built the harvester because there really is no sorghum harvesting machines. Mm. So he took uh, an old um, uh, forage cutter and then took the motor off of uh, the hydraulic motor off of a concrete mixing truck to make it self-propelled so that his tractor doesn't get so bogged down. I mean, these guys are, are you look at them and you're like, okay, these, these are simple country people. This guy's a fucking genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, legit genius. And... and and it was all built out of necessity
3: exactly you
4: know and, and uh, he, even his, his dad is like 95 years old and he still stands at the end of the sorghum line mm-hmm. and like does the bottling thing you know what so happens there.
6: when you eat sorghum instead of processed sugar and right. stuff right
4: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah he's like he's so like i walk in there he's got crutches i was like uh, mr gunter what'd you do he's like i fell and i broke my neck last week <laughs> what you know, he's like, oh, "I'll be cool. I'll be back up on the horse in two or three weeks." Yeah,
2: yeah. walk it off. Walk, it, walk off. it off, old man. Way to
4: go! I was going to pat you on the back, but you just broke it. So, um, and then of course uh, the Spring Mountain Farms. I um, can't say enough awesome things about uh, their chickens. It really is truly different chicken. Like if you just. Put them next to each other versus well those those other brands, um, the no antibiotics, the the humanely raised. It's just a it's a different deal, mm-hmm. and those people are so cool. Um,
2: we especially love Springer Mountain Farms, also because they just were our sponsors in Charleston. Mm-hmm. So big uh, shout out to those thanks guys. Springer Mountain <laughs> Farms. Thank you, Springer Mountain Farms. <laughs> thanks, Springer Mountain Farm. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, they make really good chicken i was lucky enough to eat it at your restaurant in nashville uh-huh. been lucky enough to eat it at uh, a lot of restaurants around charleston around nashville and Atlanta. Uh, also had the chance to have it at the james beard house dinner with uh chef daniel porbiansky a couple of weeks ago so really um we're not just shouting them out because they're a sponsor really they do have a great product and we love those guys thanks guys
3: definitely I have a question for you. Okay. You talked about venison. Um, If you go hunting and you kill a deer, can you then serve that in your restaurant?
4: Not in Tennessee. That is illegal, and it breaks the game laws. Uh. And, you know, I basically was going to break the law to come up here uh, and and do that. We were also planning on pulling our 20-foot fire rig trailer up here, and... um, Beardhouse was not as enthusiastic about us cooking outside over a live fire. That's so
2: weird. Um, They're just right in the middle of yeah. I know, right.
4: And I then think I was, it was like a parking issue. I was like, can I <laughs> can I send up fire bricks? Can I order this and we'll put it out on the patio? And they were like, no. They're like, okay. <laughs> so I thought about doing it anyway, and then possibly getting arrested for it, and just Asked being a wonderful. You know, PR for my PR guy. You mm. know, I, I don't know how you spend that, but. Um, yeah.
2: Well, you are known as a Renaissance man and a rebel, so I think it would be um, pretty so consistent. Cool. But I think a lot of people are really counting on you um, actually continuing to stay at the James Beard House through the duration of dinner, and, not get arrested. and they'd be really disappointed not, if they not if get you got arrested off yeah, right, halfway right. through cooking. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, is there a dish that you uh, think is going to be like the one you're most excited about, or the one you think might be most surprising to the diners? What's like that? Your your top highlight of this menu?
4: They're kind of all my favorites. We've done it four times now mm-hmm. um, in Nashville, and um, I'm I'm really connected to all of them. And like I said, each one of them kind of has a story. Down to like the fruit jellies. Mm-hmm. Like my grandmother used to pick me up every day from school, and she would have these you remember these those orange slices that are. Covered in sugar, and they're yeah. just you know terrible for you. But instead, of we used to the all the jelly that we put up last year mm-hmm. um, to make these jellies. So, like I said, it, I'm I'm pretty connected to everything that's on the menu, and there's nothing that I'm not proud of.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked when when actually we had dinner at Urban Grub in Nashville. We talked to you about um, you were putting up, you know, or hypothetically maybe possibly putting up a whole ton of tomatoes, um, and you... They're gone. Oh, I wonder, but the, they, were, they might have just been hypothetical tomatoes, so I don't know where they... They probably just faded into the ether, but I'm sure that...
4: Hypothetically, they're were, all used. There were
2: <laughs> probably a lot of really delicious tomato dinners at Urban Grub.
4: There were, yeah.
2: Um, so you're known for um, putting a lot of jams, preserves, tomatoes, pickles up at your restaurant, and I'm curious who, if you had a mentor in that space, or who taught you how to do this, or were you self-taught? What are the resources that you use for canning and preserving?
4: I was, uh, I was really, um, I had no idea what I was doing uh, initially when I started. Nobody ever really taught me, to, uh, outside of uh, older family members that would like can you know, their vegetables. Um, but I, I was never really taught a process. I never asked. Um, You know, this isn't my parents' generation. It's the generation before that. So, you know, I'd go to like Baltimore uh, in the summertime and and my great aunt and uncle would be canning tomatoes on the patio in the morning on a Saturday. And I'm just like, oh, that's strange. You've got a giant boiling pot of water out here with cans in it. Uh You know, so that never really it never registered to me because it wasn't wasn't something I was taught. I screwed up an entire I mean, like there must be I must have thrown away at least as many tomatoes as I can this past oh. year before, or you know, I mean, just we have screwed up a lot of shit, and we kind of figured out what worked and and that's you know, I feel like these things don't get taught to anybody anymore because it's not something that has to be ha- held handed down it's like the gangster gardener nobody knows how to grow this shit because nobody's teaching anybody how to grow this stuff um and not not to sound like weird or um doomsday but like what if it all goes to shit mm-hmm. you know what if everything grinds to a halt and and you don't know how to grow anything you don't know how to survive um, you know. Yeah. That's not for everybody. It and it's you know, that, that theory it's never going to happen. We all know that. Well, it's not going to come to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. But th- there is something special about turning the earth, putting something in the ground, reaping the benefit from it and knowing that you did something good.
2: Yeah. Um, I think that preserving our foodways and and passing on this knowledge is so much a part of why Heritage Radio Network exists. Um, There are so many good resources for learning about food preservation. Uh, If you go to any kind of ag school extension, that information is there, but there's really something to be said for that in-person kind of handing down. um, And it's just a lot more approachable if you have somebody to stand side by side with you and show you this is what it looks like when you put the can in the water. This right. is what this is what it looks like so this is what when it, it, it comes smell out. Like yeah. when, you, when it comes out, this is how you know it's safe to eat. And uh, I think people um, can be really nervous about you know home preserving and um, there's just so much of our our culture of, of growing food and preserving food that is I think really at danger of being lost. And uh, what the work that you're doing is so important. And I'm so happy to see the um symbolism in your menu for tomorrow night um so i just want to thank you for that uh i really encourage people to check out if you're in new york city there are still tickets available for the dinner so um, please go to jamesbeard.org slash events and look for chef edgar Penley's dinner um, tomorrow night and it's uh it's going to be amazing the menus online um, and you can find it from our website. Um, but also, Chef, where can people follow you on social media? Can they see you on Instagram?
4: <laughs> I think it's Edgar underscore Penley. Should we? Uh, I'm, I'm, check I'm, that. Looking, I'm looking okay. at that Checkers right in a um, second. And,
2: and look at Urban Grub, they have a beautiful website. You can also get yourself really hungry looking at their menu um, and also see a selection of the charcuterie plates. That Edgar creates there, uh, I can speak from experience that they are worth the trip. Absolutely amazing, and they change every day. Um, so if you're in Nashville or you go to Nashville, go to Urban Grub um, and check out the farmers market. The farmers market is Sundays.
4: No, it's every day. Every day, every day. Um, so and and that was kind of a, a little, uh, I don't know. It's a, it, was a, it was a side project that just exploded on me. Um, the, the local farmers market uh, went producer only a couple of years ago. I don't think they understood the ramifications of the people that had been selling to the people that were selling at our farmer's market up until that point. Um, and a lot of the Amish and Mennonite really got put out. They were they were suddenly just stuck with all this food that they had grown for years and been able been successful selling for for a long time. And then they were like, well we can't sell this to you or you, know, you can't buy this and resell it at the farmer's market because that you know, that's that's not legal anymore, um, and they had no way to bring it to market. What are they going to do? Run down sixty-five in their in their horse and buggy? You know, um, so we had a lot across the street. It was a par- It is a parking lot. It's got a big green strip on it, um, and so we started bringing tomatoes down, and then we started bringing squash down, and, and so in the summertime, we really keep very little produce in the restaurant itself. Um, Basically the guys My line cooks uh, Ladies and gentlemen Will walk across the street And they will pick up Just whatever they need At the moment And everything goes back in And it's fresh and ready to go um, Right then So Last year we consumed About 85 acres worth of heirloom tomatoes Wow Yeah Yeah, It's pretty legit Um, And I think 36 Six, 35 or thirty-six acres of, of uh, sweet corn, as well. So, um, I think we're going to do it. We're definitely going to do it again this year. Uh, I'm, we're thinking about expanding that. Um, the families that are raising the food uh, for us, that are growing the stuff, uh, they have the capacity to do more. Um, so we're, you know, trying to partner with them even more, and, and then to help their other families as well because, um, you know, I mean, strengthening the economy, it's, it's jobs, it's getting people doing stuff instead of just living in what they've got,
2: so. Yeah. Um, well, everybody, that's Chef Edgar Penley. He is truly a Renaissance man, has an amazing restaurant in Nashville, Urban Grub, and is just doing so much for his community and also for the traditions of preserving our foodways in the United States. So thank you, Chef Edgar, for being with us today. Really happy to have you on.
4: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
2: And that is going to bring us to the end of the HRN Happy Hour. Thanks so much to our special guests today and to our surprise co-host, Patrick Martins. I hope you come back and surprise us every week, Patrick. (laughs) I think that you will continue to have a starring role in the show. And with that, we're going to wrap it up, Kat.
3: What's our theme song? I want to give a huge shout out to Concord America, a band out of Atlanta, Georgia, for letting us use their pretty phenomenal song, Suns Out, Guns Out, for our theme song. And you can buy their album on Bandcamp, or you can listen to it on Spotify. I would highly recommend it. Um, Check them out. Brand new this week. Thank you, Concord America. (laughs) Suns
2: Out, Guns Out. Take care, everyone. That was the HRN Happy Hour. Have a great weekend.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.